Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A beautiful weekend, Tom Keen. As you forecasted, I spent much of it walking around my beloved borough. How about you? It's gorgeous. What? It was spectacular. <laughs> the Indian summer Those weekend. Worldwide, it's like 80 degrees here today, high of 82 uh, midweek. I did that in centigrade for Francie Lacroix, 27.7 degrees Celsius. And I was lectured. It's not centigrade, it's there, Celsius. There you go. There you go. My coffee today was 273 degrees minus zero Kelvin, <laughs> is where my coffee was in the machine. Keep the lid um, on. Uh, this morning. So anyways, here we are on a Monday. Yeah. Thrilled to have all of you with us on economics, finance, and investment. Brad Hintz with us. We've been talking for years with Sanford Bernstein and now at New York University. I want to primer right now on return on equity. Mm. There are two measurements within banking. Uh, Bank of America just came out with single-digit one measure, double-digit barely, 10% another but, but basically, there's two groups of American banks. Those with a double-digit return on equity and those with single-digit. What is return on equity, Professor? Well, return on equity is what the shareholders are going to get after you've paid all your expenses, right? And that's really the, the driver of the valuation. So if you look at the price book, right, the premium mm-hmm. over the book value, it tends to be very, correl- very closely correlated with ROE. You get your ROE above your cost of capital. And the share price goes up and against tangible there book. There you go. There you go. <laughs> It, it takes out debt expense, right? Return on equity is after everything. Right? After everything. And exactly. that's a big deal. Do you know what the everything is on a given bank's balance sheet? Or do you have the same mystery of 2006? Uh, you don't know what what everything is on a bank balance sheet. You've got good disclosure. Banks have better disclosure than they've had for years. But nonetheless, you know, the, the, when, when they give you a line corporate bonds you're not exactly certain what's in there you're not when when they have a, a different a certain type of loan yes you can get data from the for, for, from their call reports but it's not perfect yeah and and that's one of the uncertainties <clears throat> with that, that that goes on with banks always been one of the reasons why the banks yeah. have traded at a somewhat discount to the rest of the of, of the market David the to put opaqueness. this to put opaqueness to put this in opaque a hundred million dollar credit card loans uh-huh. on the balance sheet of Bank of America. Commercial real estate loans are as paltry $85 billion. Uh-huh. So To give you the, the size potatoes, of these, yeah. these things are beasts. <laughs> They're huge. Professor, we spoke on Friday. We were talking about Wells and J.P. Morgan and, and Citi. Now we get these results today. Uh, on the last quarterly call, Brian Moynihan said we were going to see $5 billion in savings. We see the headcount dip to 209000 uh, in this latest report. Compare the way this bank is being run to the other ones we were talking about last week. What does Brian Moynihan's Bank of America look like in comparison? 
Well, the mixes are are different, right? I mean, if if you were to think of, of Bank of America, you know, we think of Merrill Lynch, mm. right? So, you know, here you have this massive wealth management business that's there. Now, do you have you've got a you've got a credit card business that competes with all the the, the other players and the bank on, the branches on every corner, which you know is probably one of the areas that you're going to see some some, some cutback. So they're competing with the with the wells, sort of the retail business. They're competing with Wells in terms of the of the wealth management business. They also have the institutional businesses, which they're competing with 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 JPM. JPM, probably better than than Merrill Lynch on the institutional businesses, right? Merrill Lynch, the model in the of of the wealth management mm-hmm. business, right? I'm I'm sh- I'm sure Morgan Stanley doesn't say that, but I mean I I would say Merrill's probably the model that everybody's going for. And the problem with all of these banks is. You know the idea of, of too big to fail. Well, it's you know too complex to manage correctly, right? Too many linkages going back and forth, and every time you have one of those linkages, you have inefficiencies that exist in them. You know, you want to believe that scale works perfectly. Well, above a certain <laughs> level, scale doesn't work perfectly, right? There's there's there, there's sort of the reverse side of the curve. You know, I like to think of it from um, there's a the Navy pilots come sometimes use the, the term beyond mm. the power curve, uh-huh. which is, you know, the engine is operating at such a level that you're actually beginning to see power drop off the more you push on right. it. Right. The, 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 the right size yeah. of these banks. David, let issue. me translate <laughs> that. The, the power curve <laughs> is where you want to watch Cub Dodgers and you're yes. outvoted and there's a girl movie on TV. <laughs> That's the power. Are you going to reveal curve. the movie? You're not going to reveal the movie. <laughs> yeah. No, we're not going to reveal it. Be embarrassed. <laughs> The, the, the story of, uh, of bank earnings season thus far seems to be about fixed income. The difference between what was estimated and what we got, the, the gap is rather large with each, with each of these banks. Why was that? Why, why did folks not predict well? Why was the prediction so low with fixed income? Oh, see, this is, this is good. I used to be an equity analyst. There you go. So now, <laughs> I can, now, now I can do true confessions. You know, the ability to, 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 forecast, to forecast the trading sides, very, very difficult. Mm. You can look at mm. volumes, right? But you really don't know the amount of risk that they're taking. And and remember, in the case of, of, of what we saw this summer, you could take risk in governments, right? That's not that that's that that's not prohibited by Volcker. So, you know, you had monetary uncertainty, right? And that was sort of the Brexit issue, right? And so therefore you had a lot of, of, of movements in currency. Foreign exchange would have mm-hmm. done very well. Rates would have done very well. You had uncertainty regarding Fed, Fed the Fed tightening, sure. right? And so what are the clients going to do? The clients are all going to be reducing their duration for a rising rate environment. Volumes are going to pick up for the clients. So the, the, the issue here is with all this movement going on, if I'm putting risk at work and the, and the regulators are allowing me, I'm yeah. making money. Huh. Brad, let's switch gears to deposit growth. I mean, I understand they can't merge because they're too big to begin with. Deposits were $800 billion roughly during the, cri- the beginning of the crisis. They're now way out, way out over that to something on the order of $1.2 trillion demand deposits, interest-bearing deposits. And I get there's inflation and that, but there's huge deposit growth. Is that good or bad for Mr. Moynihan? Well, it, it, it is Potentially very good, right? Now, when rates rise, you know, touch wood, <laughs> when rates rise, you, you know, those deposits have, have great value. At, at zero, those deposits don't have a lot of value to him. You know, they're, you're, 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 you're not able to, to, to take advantage of that. But 
in a more normal environment, deposits are, are money in the bank. He, you know, the other the other mm-hmm. issue is the ability to lend. If you get an economy coming back, you'll have a lot of capacity. A lot of the earnings of a bank, and you know, this is one of the things that bank analysts are very well aware of. A lot of the profitability of the bank comes out of the deposit base, not the other stuff. The other stuff is at market, right? But I, the deposit base. Is I mean, the I knew you were going there, but didn't we see with J.P. Morgan and actually with Bank of America today? Pretty good loan growth. I mean, loan growth way above nominal GDP. Right. That that's true. We saw mortgages. Right. Yeah. Both that mortgages did well. Why? People were worried that rates were going to rise. Mm. I want to get that financing in, and the loan growth picked up, and and corporate yeah. cor- corporations were. In I mean, it. I want to make clear, David, and we were, you know, not that we were taking shots at Mr. Moynihan, but we were pointing out that in 07, 08, with all the CEO turnover, people inherited. A certain selective set of skeletons in the closet. Sure. Happy Halloween, Mr. Yeah. Whitehead. <laughs> this was, I would suggest respectfully, yes. was one of the more ghoulish grim. skeletons. Yeah. yeah. Ghoul- I can't, you gotta live in Brooklyn. <laughs> ghoulish. What a great weekend of anecdotal. The, the listeners we have, David, uh-huh. we're up to over 42 listeners. Right. It's absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. My mother has joined the show. Your mother. Yes. <laughs> Good morning, Mrs. Girl. Thrilled to have you with us, with David. <laughs> Mrs. McKee, Mike McKee's mother's given us up. Oh. She she abandoned <laughs> ship. Luckier. Brad Hans with us as we look at global banking. Brad, we haven't talked about retail and the employee count of retail. On a given hundred thousand of a big bank, how many people are in demand deposits, retail loans, and how many people are in all the other stuff we mumbo jumbo about every day? Um, well, the uh, that's one of the core – the retail business and its support functions yeah. are, are, are one of the bigger headcount Like 60,000 out of 100,000? We have 50, but the, the issue 50. that you that, – that the, the issue that, that you've got on this is, is – there isn't a – the, the banks don't know – what is the right size, right? They, we, remember, we went through this period where they said 24-hour ban- branches, right? And then yeah, you that had, worked. And then, <laughs> then you had the idea of you're going to have concierges saying hello to you the minute you walk mm-hmm. in. We have that at Bloomberg Surveillance. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and then that, you know, the, the, now if if you see the millennials, the millennials never visit their banks. You know, they they, they do their deposits. David, when was the last time you were in a bank? Uh, a couple months ago. I mean, it is. It's all on the phone. And uh, I, I had to uh, pay my accountant, did my taxes. I did that through Bill Pay Online as well. So yeah, it's rare. And you're even depositing checks. Yes, right? taking with, photos with the phone. And that's right. Yeah. And so you know the you you've got a generational issue. And you know so if 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 you're Brian Moynihan, one of the questions that that you have to ask is you know how many branches do I need? But then on the other hand, you have where wealth is not related to. To population either, mm. right? So we know that the that a, a lot of the wealth is in the older group, and the older group uses the branches. So you know this is this is a an interesting question. I mean, do you want your do you want branches in you know La Jolla mm-hmm. and Burlingame, mm-hmm. right, and Scarsdale, and right, and 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 then you don't have branches where young people live? Right. I mean, this is this is the kind of question they're dealing with. What have we learned from from bank earnings thus far about the the health of the economy writ large. Uh, we always hear that going to earnings season, this is going to take the temperature of, of, of how the economy is doing. From what we've heard from Wells and City and Bank of America, um, what have we learned about how the economy is doing? Well, you, you know that because of rates. Yeah. Rates don't rise unless an economy is yeah. doing, right? So we're, we're, we've got an economy that's moving. It may not be moving as fast as people want it to, right? And so we're seeing 
bank loans grow. I mean, mm-hmm. credit cards are doing reasonably well, and so that's you know that's that's another sign that you have an economy that, that that's that's doing well. So the you know the 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 banks right. the, the banks on the retail side are, mm. are are profiting from that. To bring it back to investment banking and a huge part of our audience, will the boutique banks just take more and more people? And critically, will they take more and more key people? Um, the answer is yes. They got to. Right? Yes, I mean, they if, got to. You know, if you were a world famous M and A banker, wouldn't you think that I'm better off putting yeah. my? And particularly if you're at a place where the stock has not performed well. Remember, you're being yeah. paid in deferred compensation, in deferred stock, which right? is usually stock. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And this is one where you're saying I'm bringing in a lot of profitability, yeah. right? So, so yes, the boutiques they continue to right. take share. The problem with the boutiques is very simple. You know, the the boutiques are not capital intensive, right? They're an advisory business, right? And so, if 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 a boutique walks in and to a to a technology company and says, you know, we you know we're going to do an M and A deal for you, they can't. And that the company then decides that they're that they'd rather go public. It's very easy for Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley to push the boutique out. Right. So you know, so the boutique model has has great value, yeah. but it di- but it's not it 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 you mm. know it is not invulnerable. And so what we haven't seen is we haven't seen these boutiques you know going into the underwriting right. side because that uses capital. Now, this has been great, Brad Hens. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming in uh, a few times this week as we see bank earnings. Maybe next time you can discuss how Purdue football needs to win. <laughs> Oh, you, that's, that's a very unkind was that, thing. That was very that's unkind. Like, yeah, that was not. I did it only because it's like Indian summer, 80 degrees. That's a, a, a sad story. Our exec, full, full disclosure, folks, our executive producer and uh, a, a certain number of our staff, we're infected with Purdue. Is that right? We boiler up every morning. <laughs> yes, we do. On Bloomberg surveillance. And it's, it's challenging. <sighs> Is it? Yes, yes. Uh, when you go back to West Lafayette, it's a sad sad place. Very good. Good morning out in Indiana. Greatly appreciate it. (laughs) Brad Hens. I'm going to suggest Empire Manufacturing is sort of a secondary tertiary Hmm. number. Not this morning. The 10-year yield in two basis points, 1.78. Two-year yield comes in two basis points. Futures were flat. They got a little negative weight to them. Dollar weakness here, uh, Euro 110 uh, as as well. So, you know, that, that creates some more interest as we get to 915 uh, this morning. Lindsay Piegza uh, is a stifle. Lindsay, good morning. Tell me good about morning. industrial production. Hmm. Let me go to the basic question. If we're a service sector economy, why do I care? Well, remember, manufacturing still is a very important component of the U.S. economy. And like you said, this morning's Empire Manufacturing Index was a market mover as it gives us an indication of what to expect from the broader ISM reported later uh, in the month. Lindsay, I don't know. uh, Help me here, Colin of the Twins. (laughs) Lindsay, where are you calling from? Right now I'm calling from New York City. Oh, you're in New York. So, you know, it's like 80 degrees here. Like the air conditioning's on. It's pretty nice and humid, right? It's like the middle, you know, we're getting out the Halloween stuff. And uh, David had to buy four pumpkins this weekend. (laughs) Lindsay, how do utilities figure in to industrial production, whether it's hot or cold? Does that move the needle? 
Well, it does, because remember, consumers are going to be spending more on utilities consumption uh, if we do see weather unfavorably cold during the winter season, and vice versa. If we do have a very mild winter, consumers will have more wealth in their pocket because they're not expending that wealth on keeping their home warm or uh, paying more for, for fuel and natural gas. And so it certainly will play into the, the portion of what consumers are doing in the final quarter of the year. Now, as we know, prices right now for energy are much lower, and if we can keep the expenditures lower as well through the fourth quarter, that will be a nice boost to top-line GDP. Lindsay, you've got a call on rates. I want want to talk a bit about the the Fed uh, here. Uh, Stan Fisher speaking today at the Economic Club of of New York. We'll have that on Bloomberg Television at 1215 on Bloomberg Radio, the headlines uh, as well. Uh, just read. I'll, I'll read this, the salient line from your most recent note here. While some argue the case for a rate increase is strengthening, at this point the Fed still can't make the case for a rate increase. You say not in November, not in December. Why? Well, I, I think that the biggest thing that we heard in the September FOMC meeting minutes is there, there is a, a certain component of the committee that is very anxious to raise rates, but they're not making the case to do so based on the data. They're making the case because of the Fed's reputation, because of these concerns about the calendar, keeping interest rates at this low level for this extended period of time, or perhaps the idea that Fed policy comes with an extreme lag, so the economy may heat up in the coming years, and we need to act now. But still, the vast majority of the committee is very much focused on the fact that the U.S. economy is not recovering as expected. Growth, remember, is still just averaging 1% across the first six months of the year. Inflation, well below the committee's longer-term target. And by their own forecast, they do not expect that longer-term objective of 2% to be met for the next several years. So if you're just focused on the data, if you're just looking at the Fed's dual mandate of stable prices and full employment, there is no sense of immediacy to raise rates at this point. So square that for me because we hear time and time again the mantra that they are data-dependent, they are solely focused uh, on the data. Well, remember, if we read the full statement that the Fed said, yes, they're willing to raise rates, and some of them said potentially relatively soon. That's a quote. But that depends. There's a second part of the statement. If labor market data continues to improve, if inflation continues to show further evidence that it's moving towards that longer-term 2% objective. So I I think the Fed has been pretty clear that they are data-dependent, but Mm -hmm. the market seems to not necessarily have the focus to read the entire statement. They're just looking at that word relatively soon or strengthening the case for a near-term rate increase. Lindsay, quickly, or we'll come back on industrial production. How is the consumer right now? Mm. The consumer is under pressure. It's very clear that the consumer was doing the heavy lifting in the second quarter, but going forward, Against the backdrop of still negative business investment and declining income growth, right. it's very likely that they're going to face increased hardship in the second half yeah. of the year. I saw a chart over the weekend, Lindsay, which was number of Americans going to restaurants, and I don't remember the month, August, September. It was like off a cliff. I mean, does that surprise you that, that people are going out to restaurants less here oh, in late summer, early fall? It's a big concern when consumers begin to tighten their purse strings on any type of category, whether that's going out to eat or whether that's yeah. buying electronics, buying new apparel yeah. uh, for the changing well, season. It's always a signal yeah. that the consumer is less confident yeah. in their financial situation. Um, I, David, I went out this week and had a six-pack from you of the culture yogurt, <laughs> culture yogurt from Brooklyn. It was so good. Yeah, right across from J.J. Byrne Park in how Park do you, Slope. Yeah, how do you sell culture yogurt? Here's what you do, folks. You put a bottle of maple syrup 
and the equal parts. Call, That's it, right. call it healthy. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I mean, oh. Michael Bard, there was like a bottle. <laughs> Of, of maple syrup in this yogurt. They were calling it healthy. I had a six-pack, but it doesn't oh, matter. We go. thank David Gura for letting us try Culture Yogurt of Brooklyn. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I would, let's do one more question here about Empire Manufacturing. Yes, here we have please. the New York Fed study of manufacturing in New York State. Lindsay, Explain to to us why outside of New York this metric is important. What does it tell us about the the economy as a whole? Well, what we do is we look at the regional reports for manufacturing ahead of that national ISM release. And as we get more and more information on a regional basis, it really sets the tone for what the overall country was experiencing that month in terms of manufacturing output. And, of course, this morning's very disappointing empire number coming in well below consensus, deep into negative territory, really not setting a positive tone for that, uh, that upcoming October ISM number. And remember, most recently, the ISM did move back into positive territory. This was seen as a, as a nice uh, green shoot, possibly the second half of the year, picking up momentum. The empire number this morning really throws some, uh, some cold water on that yeah. thesis. David, jump in here. I'm going to copy that. I'm going to send it out on Twitter. The Empire's it, – it's five pages, David. Uh-huh. There it is, the PDF, yeah, right I'll there. I'll send it out. <laughs> okay. Lizzie, are there any bright spots for manufacturing right now when you look at all of the data? Anything to indicate that, uh, that there is some health to the sector? I think right now we can look out to the global economy and say there are some variables that may become silver linings going forward. If we see further easing pressure on the dollar, of course, that makes U.S.-made goods uh, less expensive, more attractive on the global market. If we see global demand pick up, global markets firming, that may trickle down into, again, higher demand for U.S.-made goods. If we do see consumers begin to experience more robust income growth, that would help uh, demand here at home. But remember, these are possibilities. We haven't yet seen these come to fruition, and more likely we will continue to see near-term uh, pressure on manufacturers. So we've got business activity declining in New York State, the labor market remaining weak according to this survey, yet the outlook, indexes for the six-month outlook suggested that respondents were more optimistic about future conditions than in September. Why is that the case? Well, if you look back historically, uh, that number does not necessarily reflect a longer-term trend in the reality of activity. It's the same way when we ask consumers, how do you feel about uh, the expectations of growth over the next 6 to 12 months? Generally, they're, they're optimistic, but what we see is that their current behavior doesn't reflect that. And so, it, remember, this is a survey. This is just saying, hey, how do you feel about conditions uh, over the next year to two? And genuine, genuinely, uh, generally, we, we hear that manufacturers are more optimistic than what the actual data is uh, representing. How much credence do you, Lindsay Piegza, give sentiment? It sounds like you're not, you are not that sentiment. When you're looking at the Fed, uh, you, you want them to be wholly data dependent here. We're looking at the, the, the survey here. You're saying that um, you know, sentiment can be uh, kind of misleading here. How important is sentiment right now when you assess the state of the economy? 
Well, sentiment can be very important because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If consumers do begin to get very concerned about the outlook, whether that's from a monetary policy standpoint, a fiscal policy standpoint, of course, we have the presidential election coming up, playing into volatility at this point. And if consumers are concerned, that can trickle into behavior now. They can begin to tighten their purse strings, pull back, not invest, not not take on new amounts of debt, not buy that new home or that new car purchase. So it can have an immediate impact. But this is important. Do you see any indications of that beginning to occur? I mean, Vice Chairman Fisher today is going to take a bigger academic view. Lindsay, help me here with the market dynamics of some of these more tepid indicators. Do they indicate any chance towards 0% GDP? Absolutely. Look at retail sales. In fact, look at core retail sales. Negative for two consecutive months, followed by the most recent report of just a minimal, minimal one-tenth increase. We see consumers' propensity to buy vehicles on a steep decline, now down 2% year over year. And in fact, looking at the consumer savings rate, now ticking up back towards 6%, the third consecutive month of increase, when do consumers begin to save? When they're concerned about their financial future. So we are already seeing a translate into the data. You know, I'm looking at your your note here about the Fed, uh, and a a lot of it has to do with the uh, increasing lack of unanimity among the FOMC. How hard is it going to be for this FOMC to raise rates if there isn't, uh, maybe if not total unanimity, more unanimity than we're seeing now? Well, I I think there needs to be a a more broad-based consensus among committee members, certainly, before they pull the trigger. If it's a split vote, five to five, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult to say, yes, we're we're confident in our decision. So you really need to see the pendulum swing very far to the other side, saying nine to one or ten unanimous vote, to really give the market confidence that the Fed does, in fact, know what they're doing, and they're taking the appropriate policy steps that's best to maintain uh, what little strength we're seeing in the U.S. economy at this point. Lindsay, thank you so much. Lindsay Piegza with uh, Stiefel uh, uh, this morning. Matthew Mish is with UBS and wrote in, with a team a brilliant report last week for UBS. They really caught my uh, attention. Matthew, wonderful to have you on on bonds. What is wrong with the consensus view? Tom, thanks for having us on. Um, I wouldn't say uh, so much as what's wrong, but I think what um, is critical to understand is most clients um, in the corporate bond market are basically focused on technicals. Um, fundamentals in all uh, with all due respect, I think really doesn't matter anymore. Um, and a lot of that is driven by the global central bank policy that you've seen, which really has come to, to very um, unprecedented proportions. So the central bank, for example, the European <clears throat> central bank, is now buying almost 100% of the net supply of high-grade corporate issuance in the market. Um, in uh, places like Asia, you have substantial demand coming um, from places like Japan because of what uh, is being uh, dictated as 
new policy, um, obviously, uh, in terms of the fixed income allocation uh, across pensions or insurance companies, you have significant interest um, in U.S. credit overseas. Um, and what you're seeing is obviously that uh, in the FX uh, and the swap markets, the basis or the cross-currency swap markets, that it's getting increasingly expensive um, for clients to look at uh, and basically invest in the U.S. But nonetheless, that demand keeps coming. It is more than right. absorbing the supply in the U.S. market, um, and as a result, you are, you, know, you, are, you are in a state where clients, I would say, are, are somewhat paralyzed. Right. They have fundamental concerns because technicals are just the yeah. overriding factor. Just, just, just brilliant, and the idea here of paralyzed is what gets my attention in, uh, within the UBS report. If they are paralyzed, are we accentuating the distortion now versus one or two or three years ago, which gets you to financial instability? Well, I think, look, any time, um, you know, it, it, for fixed income, I think, as we all can appreciate, the, the future return is based on the yield. So to the extent to which we've seen the substantial rally in global rates structurally, not obviously uh, keeping in mind the weakness that we've seen over the last couple of months, but structurally you're at very low uh, government bond yield levels globally. And now what you've done is taken credit spreads back to um, – near the tightest levels. I mean, high-grade credit spreads in the U.S. around 130 basis points, high yield. Now inside of 500 basis points at about 485. Um, those are not the all-time tights that we saw in 2014, but they're certainly much tighter. Um, yeah. And so at this point, I think it's also important, again, the incremental demand, um, perversely, when we talk with clients, is not coming from the domestic investor, who I would say is increasingly focused on the U.S. fundamentals, so US, uh, the U.S. economy, U.S. corporate earnings, uh, and monetary policy in the U.S. The real marginal driver of demand at this point is coming uh, from overseas. And again, when you think about the cost or the, you know, the yield, particularly adjusted for the cross-currency uh, and, other, and other hedging costs, it really makes the asset class look less attractive, or it should make it look, look less attractive from a foreign investor's perspective uh, than it would for a domestic investor. But yet, their, their alternative, in many cases, is zero. Right. We're talking so with Matthew Mish. Do I try and earn something, or do I earn zero? We're yeah. talking with Matthew that obviously. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I, the, the report that Tom mentioned was, was drawn from a trip that you took and the reaction that you got from clients when you asked them sort of what they were following and, and most interested in. I wanted to ask you about what, what those clients had to say about duration. Again, looking here for the non-consensus views, what were they saying about duration in particular? Uh, I mean, I think, it, it, again, it depends whether you're talking about uh, foreign investors, for example, in the U.K. or Europe, or you're talking about U.S. clients. Foreign clients, um, I think, in general, again, are... Uh, directly looking at the U.S. high-grade credit market. Right. Uh, they are looking increasingly at longer duration or longer tenors. So we've seen much more interest in the 20-year and 30-year wow. part of the wow. corporate bond wow. market. And so the bottom line is mm. the answer based on the investment uh, interest is that they're not overly concerned about duration right. or they're willing to take that risk relative to investing in their home market, where in many cases the yields are basically sub-1%. Okay. I want to get this in quickly, Matthew Mission, and come back with you. Uh, is Well, if that's the case, are you beginning to see not a panic but just grave concern within institutional retirement money that they're not going to make their actuarial assumption? I mean, I think that that's a, that's a continued concern. Um, very clearly, I think you're starting to see evidence that in many cases there's a significant cost focus uh, that, that seems to have accelerated, at least from what we can tell, 
um, from those institutions to try and basically rein in costs, uh, which obviously speaks to the fact that the concerns over the you know over the future for lower returns, yeah. um, you know, are, are 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 certainly below, and in some cases, well below uh, what was expected. So, uh, you know, we I would say don't talk to those clients uh, as a as a sole focus, but that anxiety certainly yeah. is growing. I, I wouldn't okay. say that it's uh, you know that it that it's reached uh, epic proportions. This is br- well, uh, we like epic on a Monday, particularly Matthew Mish. Stay with us. With UBS. David Gura, why don't you uh, continue with Matthew Mish, UBS on credit? Yes, work on developed credit strategy at UBS. But I wanted to ask you about uh, some of the larger and more underpriced risk scenarios for European credit investors, as you put it in your report. Uh, one of those having to do with the idiosyncratic stress among European banks. How much is the, uh, the, the situation involving German banks, Italian banks, weighing on credit right now? You know, it, it, it's certainly weighing on specific institutions such as, um, again, the Italian banks, as you mentioned, um, certainly um, select German banks. But it broad-based, it's not really having a significant impact. And again, part of that is because, you know, the net supply um, for European high-grade credit is largely being bought or absorbed by the ECB through the CSPP program. And there's also expectations that if things do get worse, some clients, and again, this is not a majority, but some believe it's possible that the ECB may actually go back uh, on what it originally intended, I think, and basically buy uh, bank or financial bonds. So we haven't seen a lot of stress, and I would say that's one of the things that emerged from the meetings, um, is that clients certainly are positioned more constructively on European banks in general uh, and more broadly. And I would say what's interesting is that does stand in contrast to, I would say, the general base in the U.S., which is more skeptical uh, and more concerned around the European banks. And the big issue, to be clear, is that central bank policy and monetary policy has put a lot of pressure uh, on business models, particularly European bank business models. And you can see that in the equity prices, but we haven't seen that flow through really to the debt prices I alluded to at the top, other than specific uh, select institutions. So one of the key risks we believe is to the extent to which uh, you know, monetary policy continues to exert uh, and the broader growth picture continues to exert a lot of pressure on the European banks. Um, to be clear, on the credit side, clients are long European financials. They are generally long uh, the broader banking sector. Um, and despite the wobbles and the weakness that you've seen in the European equity market, uh, there is a view from credit investors that this is, at this point and going forward, an income statement problem, not a balance sheet problem. What are you seeing right now with regard to energy and, and high yield? We see oil here around 50, 51 bucks a barrel. What, what, what are you seeing there? You know, we've seen a, a tremendous rally in uh, low-quality or triple-C credit within U.S. high yield and the oil sector. Uh, to put into context, you have triple-C debt that's up uh, almost 30% year-to-date. So, you know, I think at the start of the year, at one point in, Q, in, the, in the first quarter, you had uh, yields on energy debt that were more than twice what you had uh, at the overall high-yield index level. Now that spread has really yeah. compressed down, and for the sector in general, you're only trading with a modest, uh, a modest discount to the broader market, so call it 1% to 2%, depending on the index that you use. So the market from our side has very much priced in, to use, um, uh, to use an analogy, uh, the sustainability of most energy companies um, and the survivability, basically at oil prices right. that are here or higher, with a significant decline going forward uh, in expected default rates. Okay, okay, but this is great, and I, and I love all the talk, and I get it. <laughs> what it means is it's priced to perfection. If that's the case, Matthew Mish, what do you tell retail or institutional money 
that needs yield. Are you becoming a new advocate for dividend growth? Yeah, what we're saying very clearly is if you look at dispersion in the market, a lot of things look priced to perfection. There's a difficulty in finding um, attractive value. That's what we hear from clients. Everything is picked over. There's not a lot of opportunity. You know, unfortunately, I think what that means, at least traditionally, is you're supposed to go back to blocking and tackling, to basic credit fundamentals, and you should try and pick things that are, again, because the fact of incremental, that incremental yield pickup is not significant, you should try and buy things that are more defensive, that are higher in quality, uh, and basically just sit and hold tight. You know, you can earn reasonable income still uh, in, the, in, the, in the triple B uh, or the crossover segment of the U.S. credit market. Uh, there are sectors like utilities and telecoms, which are fairly defensive. Um, and the bottom line is perhaps the, the strongest endorsement for owning those uh, above the riskier or the higher yielding sectors is you're really just not getting paid right. a lot to be in the latter. Help us then with what Full Faith and Credit U.S. does if there's a bid on everything in sight. I mean, are you lower for longer? One of your colleagues in crime, HSBC, takes it out to 2021. I would suggest UBS Economics has a more optimistic tone than many other banks. Is lower for longer out years? I mean, structurally, we think certainly lower for longer um, is still the regime uh, or is still the right characterization. Um, we generally... I think, as you say, are a little bit more optimistic on the uh, on the certainly uh, on the U.S. economy uh, than perhaps peers, as you cited, um, but but not substantially so. And I think the broader view is that, uh, again, from the client trips, for example, in recent weeks, most clients think the Fed will hike once in December and is not really going to do much of anything next year. Um, so in that environment, I think, as you alluded to at the top, what people are concerned with is not just the demand side and the significant influence uh, of foreign demand, which, again, is really driven by the relative value proposition between choosing U.S. credit or something with yield and zero, uh, but also the supply side. Um, okay. And that's a point that we made in the piece, which is there are concerns uh, that the supply side is not going to be as robust, partly due to some of the, uh, the regulation intervention you've had with some of the large M&A deals. Uh, mm-hmm. There are concerns about repatriation potentially next year. Uh, if that happens, will you start to see less de- debt issuance? Um, and there's right. a variety of other kind of uncertainties that may actually make yeah. uh, the corporate debt pie smaller next <clears throat> year. So if you have more yeah. demand, less supply, you know, there is a concern in a lower for longer environment that you extend further. Um, and, uh, you know, again, obviously that it's certainly possible. Um, but I would say, you know, it, it, it certainly for me echoes back to the, you know, the, the type of environment we saw in 05, oh five oh six. I go back to price perfect, price to perfection. Matthew Mish, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.